0: We go to liberate, not to conquer. We will not fly our flags in their country. We are entering Iraq to free a people and the only flag which will be flown in that ancient land is their own. Show respect for them. There are some who are alive at this moment who will not be alive shortly. Those who do not wish to go on that journey, we will not send. As for the others, I expect you to rock their world Wipe them out if that is what they choose. But if you are ferocious in battle, remember to be magnanimous in victory. Iraq is steeped in history. It is the site of the Garden of Eden, of the Great Flood, and the birthplace of Abraham. Tread lightly there.
1: Twenty years ago, in March 2003, the American-led invasion of Iraq began. On the eve of battle, Colonel Tim Collins of the British Army's Royal Irish Regiment made a rousing speech to his troops. We've recreated part of it.
0: It is my foremost intention to bring every single one of you out alive. But there may be people among us who will not see the end of this campaign. We will put them in their sleeping bags and send them back. There will be no time for sorrow.
1: Alongside America, the UK joined the war with two key aims, as set out by the Prime Minister at the time, Tony Blair.
2: On Tuesday night, I gave the order for British forces to take part in military action in Iraq. Their mission, to remove Saddam Hussein from
0: power and disarm Iraq of its weapons of mass destruction.
1: Six years later, in Basra, two Royal Marines lowered the flag. It was the beginning of the end of the UK's role in the war.
2: At the end, a minute's silence to remember the fallen and reflect on at least 100,000 Iraqis believed to have died.
1: Saddam Hussein was dead. The country had been torn asunder and hundreds of thousands of people had been killed, and no weapons of mass destruction were ever found.
3: I've got mixed feelings here. What did my son die for? I look at Iraq today, and I think, is that what Tom
1: died for? So how did we come to wage war on the cradle of civilization? Where did the allegation that Iraq was hiding weapons of mass destruction actually come from and how did it mislead us into a war this is the story of a dodgy dossier a source called curveball and the weapons that were never there and we'll hear from a key weapons inspector who was you're listening to stories of our times from the times and the sunday times i'm manveen rana today Iraq, 20 years on, the weapons that never were.
2: I had a rather sort of exotic NBC kit. NBC, that's a suit that protects you from nuclear, biological and chemical attacks, uh, which had been bought for me from a shop in East London, which was rather a sort of unglamorous bright yellow rubber suit, which you're supposed to don. I actually tried it on in the office. I'm six foot two, and trying to climb into this thing was almost impossible. In fact, it was impossible. Uh, It caused much mirth in the office. But of course, it wasn't funny, because if I was going to be in a position where I had to put this thing on, I wouldn't have been able to do so. I'm uh, Michael Evans. I was defence editor of the Times for 12 years, and that took in the Iraq war and a whole lot of other wars too. And now I'm freelance defence specialist writer for the Times.
1: Twenty years ago, in Britain, a fierce debate raged across the papers and in parliament about whether or not Britain should join America in invading Iraq. At the time, Michael was in Kuwait with British forces near the Iraqi border, and he was being told that Saddam Hussein could launch a chemical weapons attack at any moment. So, to prepare... He had his yellow rubber suit from London and some pretty basic pointers in case the worst happened.
2: The only training I got was from an American army sergeant and you literally just had to make a decision. The nerve agent warhead is coming in my direction. You get this what looked like a sort of large pen and you stab it in your left leg. Again, pretty wild and (laughs) unrealistic. And I remember at the time thinking... I'm never going to do it. I just don't see myself doing it. But I guess if there definitely was a sarin nerve agent attack, I guess I would have done it.
1: Michael, take us back to this time 20 years ago, those sort of fraught days just in the run-up to the war. You know, I just remember screaming headlines about weapons of mass destruction, about WMDs. What exactly were the WMDs everybody was so anxious about. And, and why were they such a concern?
2: WMD obviously means weapons of mass destruction, which means nuclear, chemical, biological. And probably in ordinary people's minds, and certainly in a lot of MPs' minds, WMD meant that literally Saddam Hussein had got these sort of weapons of mass destruction, which he could launch against in this country. There was such a momentum for this sort of image that Saddam Hussein was the number one evil man in the world and he had to be dealt with you have to somehow remember that 20 years back this was some sort of apocalyptic debate that everyone was holding so when the government decided to publish the intelligence which was unprecedented it underlined the fact that here was a serious developing crisis which had to be dealt with and saddam hussein had had history He'd used chemical weapons in the Iran-Iraq war in the 1980s. So he had history. He'd already done it It to devastating effect, killing thousands of people.
3: When they bombed us, nothing happened. We had no problem. But after almost four hours, my body started reacting to the chemicals. First, my eyes started to burn, and then I started vomiting badly.
2: I felt like I was dying. So... It was clear to those who were creating this dossier on Saddam Hussein that he'd already done it in the past and therefore there was every reason to believe that he would do it again now.
1: And Michael, you were covering this day in, day out. You were right in the middle of it. What did the intelligence say? And do you remember, I mean, what was your reaction when you saw it?
2: Well, remember, the intelligence was literally put into this dossier
1: This was the moment the Prime Minister's long-awaited dossier of evidence was finally released in Downing Street. There was a scramble as reporters rushed to take away the document, which the government hopes will win doubters over to its view that Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction and must be stopped.
2: When I read it through, it seemed pretty good to me, but there were some things that were missing and there were some things that stood out but didn't sound right. The first thing that it didn't have It didn't have many ifs and buts in it. Normally, when you hear about intelligence reports, there's a lot of sort of, well, it could be this, it could be that. Intelligence isn't a document full of facts. Intelligence is all about assessments and analysis based on what they hope is good sources. And it seemed to me that they must have good sources because they were coming out with all this dramatic stuff. But there was very little hesitancy about the report. That worried me a little bit. I am quite sure, I think most people are, that he has these weapons and that the people in the documentation exist to show that. And the other thing that stood out was this wonderful 45-minute warning. What it said was that the Iraqi forces had the capability to launch weapons of mass destruction within 45 minutes of the order being given. Now that could only be correct and accurate if it referred to battlefield weapons. And by that, I mean artillery loaded with shells that are tipped with a chemical warhead. They just have 15 miles range or something like that. They're not gonna launch and arrive in the heart of London. But the report didn't say that. It didn't say, but by the way, we're only referring to battlefield weapons. It just left it as unsaid. And that seemed to me to be a little bit unwise. And of course, on the basis of that report, a lot of headlines the following day gave the impression that literally this country was potentially facing the threat of weapons of mass destruction within 45 minutes of the order being given, which was never, never correct. But I don't think the government really put that one right at the time. And it helped to generate, if you like, this building momentum towards the war that eventually happened.
1: And at the time, there were weapons inspectors who were looking at at what was happening in Iraq. Just remind us about the role they played in the debate.
2: Hans Blix was the was the head of the UN weapons inspection team and his job was to try and find these weapons of mass destruction which everyone said was around in Iraq. His team had carried out some 700 inspections at 500 sites uh, by March 2003. I would hope that they would give us more sites to look because that's the best thing that we can have from the intelligence. Then we can test whether Iraqis actually have hidden something. All he said, quite rightly, was we have not discovered any weapons of mass destruction and we would like to continue to search for more.
1: 20 years later, we've tracked down one of the weapons inspectors who was there in Iraq before the war.
3: I'm Robert Kelly. I go by Bob, of course, as an American. I'm a nuclear engineer, and I worked in the nuclear weapons programs of the United States for about 35 years. So I felt myself as as being very competent to go into Iraq and look for their weapons.
1: Robert, or Bob, was one of the weapons inspectors who went in with the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, in the run-up to the war. But that wasn't the first time that Bob had investigated weapons of mass destruction in Iraq.
3: I was first asked to go into Iraq by the State Department to support the United Nations in 1991, when the war had just finished and we were looking for weapons of mass destruction after Gulf War I. And in that particular case, we found lots of weapons of mass destruction. My activities were essentially limited to the nuclear in the nuclear area we found a very large program to produce uranium enriched uranium for bombs and a a fairly poorly organized program to build the bombs themselves i would guess that if they had succeeded in making the enriched uranium which wasn't going very well that they could have produced the bomb in say five more years but we stopped that in 1992 I, i was personally responsible for supervising the Iraqi army to blow up the buildings of the nuclear weapons program. They came in with explosives and blew them up one by one.
1: This is while Saddam was still in power. He oh, yes. gave the go-ahead for that.
3: Yes, uh, they knew that they'd been caught out. They knew that uh, the program wasn't going to go anywhere. And so they cooperated with us to some extent. I went back to the United States in 1993 at the end of the year because the nuclear weapons program was dead we killed it, we blown up the buildings, we'd mapped it out, we had their documents, and there really wasn't anything left to learn. And that's why it was kind of surprising that in uh, 2001, the whole thing opened up again. And we were going to be required to go back into the country and do it all again.
1: So Bob, take me back to 2001. You're asked to go back into Iraq. Tell me what you were sent off to to look for specifically, and tell me what it was like when you arrived there. Were you welcomed in?
3: We didn't have a lot of information that was very useful to go on from member states or CIA. We had been out of the country for three years because Saddam had thrown the inspectors out in 1998. So we were doing everything remotely with satellite imagery and literature surveys and things like that. And so we had a list of things that sounded interesting that we'd want to check up on. Has this facility been rebuilt? Have they purchased equipment to do a certain job? The other side of it was the US had two or three things that they got very excited about uh, that they wanted us to look for. One was these aluminum tubes that they thought were for centrifuges. The centrifuges are a machine to enrich uranium to a high level to make a bomb. And there was also these uh, stories that Iraq was looking to import uranium from Niger in in Central Africa. And our job was to be so prepared when we went into the country that we could track those stories to ground, which we did. Both of those stories were completely false. And a very large part of our effort was wasted on chasing uh, these phantoms.
1: Did you know when you went in that those stories were false?
3: Because you're trying to be a good inspector, you don't know that it's it's false until you go in and do the work. But we knew it was false in in our hearts. You know, I didn't go in there as, as an uninformed person. I saw the aluminum tubes at the CIA before I went. I knew they weren't for centrifuges. And I talked to the people at CIA and said, these are not for centrifuges. And they said, well, we're sure they are. And we're not interested in your opinion. It wasn't me telling them alone. It was the U.S. Department of Energy that builds centrifuges. It was the European Consortium Urenco, which is part of um, the Dutch, German, and British uranium operation. It was other intelligence organizations. We all said, this is not true. But there was one individual there who had very poor credentials, but he had some credentials that the CIA had hired. And no matter what evidence we presented to him that he was wrong, uh, he just continued to push that story. We in the country then showed very convincingly the tubes were for making small rockets for um, conventional warfare. They had nothing to do with uh, long-range missiles, and they had nothing to do with nuclear. But once we had got done showing that in the field, we didn't see any change in the political position of the United States. Uh, George Bush and, and their famous Colin Powell speech to the Security Council.
0: Iraq's behavior
1: demonstrates that Saddam Hussein and his regime have made no effort, no effort,
2: to disarm as required by the international community. Indeed, Saddam Hussein and his regime are concealing their efforts to produce more weapons of mass destruction
3: they continued to peddle that trash.
1: Back in Britain, it was the same story. Despite those warnings from the weapons inspectors, the government looked set to join America in its invasion. At the time, Michael Evans was reporting on the unstoppable March to War.
2: This great political, diplomatic, military momentum that had been building up had gone too far. And then, of course, the whole political debate came in about whether you should get a second resolution from the UN to the use of force.
1: Just remind us about the argument around that and why people thought it was necessary and where the debate was.
2: It's about international law. It was felt that you needed a proper mandate from the UN to use force. And the government itself wanted it because they wanted to have a copper-bottomed authority from the UN. They never got it, principally because France and Russia didn't think it was justified. And that then introduced this extraordinary sort of debate about whether it was lawful to carry on with an invasion uh, without the second mandate. They based it eventually uh, on the argument that Saddam Hussein had been in breach Uh, of United Nations resolutions about the retention and development of weapons of mass destruction. He'd been in breach of it since 1991 and that therefore it justified taking military action. It was a very difficult argument, one that caused a lot of angst in the Tony Blair government. To retreat now, I believe, would put at hazard all that we hold dearest. Turn the United Nations back into a talking shop, stifle the first steps of progress in the Middle East... Leave the Iraqi people to the mercy of events on which we would have relinquished all power to influence for the better. But eventually, with Washington firmly in the view that military action was justified, they came down on the side of saying, right, we can carry on with this war without a second mandate. And it was an argument, of course, that led to the resignation of Robin Cook, who was then leader of the Commons and formerly foreign secretary.
1: And that was an extraordinary moment in Parliament. Just remind us of his argument of of what he said.
2: Robin Cook was probably one of the finest orators in the House of Commons. I applaud the heroic efforts the Prime Minister has made in trying to secure a second resolution. Whenever he stood up to speak, everyone listened. And his argument was simple. We cannot now pretend that getting a second resolution was of no importance. You cannot go to war without international agreement. It will be unlawful for a war to go ahead without this mandate.
3: I intend to join those tomorrow night who
2: vote against military action now. It is for that reason and that reason alone and with a heavy heart that I've resigned from the government. But the Blair government had decided that it was justified, and they did it. I I believe in good faith, believing that despite the failure of the weapons inspectors to find any weapons of mass destruction, they believed that the threats were still there.
1: You were in Kuwait at the time, very close to the border with Iraq. Just what did it mean for you, whether or not there, there would be WMDs? I mean, how much of a worry was it?
2: I can remember it very well, because I remember interviewing all the commanding officers who were involved in preparations for the war, and all of them, without exception, believed the intelligence. I just remember the feeling that, my God, this is this is actually going to happen. Some particular point in Iraq, the Republican Guard or whoever of, of Saddam Hussein are going to open fire with weapons of mass destruction. So yes, it was incredibly real. And I had I had absolutely no reason to doubt that this was a genuine fear. I didn't doubt it. I didn't have any reason to doubt it.
1: So how did the intelligence agencies get it so wrong? Who were the mysterious sources convincing them that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction which could be deployed in minutes? Coming up... We'll find out about one of those sources, a man codenamed Curveball. That's in just a moment. I'm Christina Lamb. I'm Chief Foreign Correspondent of the Sunday Times, and I mostly cover conflict around the world. I particularly focus on what happens to women in war. And the reason that we can do this kind of reporting is thanks to the subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. So please subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times.
0: A full-scale invasion of Iraq is underway this morning by land, sea and air. For ten hours, parts of the 3rd Infantry Brigade had
2: charged across the desert in a formation four kilometres wide. This was hard, relentless driving, taking the column 120 miles deep inside Iraq.
1: It's the 20th of March, 2003, and the war has begun. The initial military victory actually comes very quickly. Just a few weeks later, the statue of Saddam Hussein is toppled as chains attached to a U.S. marine tank pull it down. This giant statue crumbled at the knees and toppled over, but as it collapsed, a great roar came out from the cloud. There it goes. It has fallen down to the ground. It is an incredibly symbolic moment for the people of Iraq. But back in London... The debate over the strength of the intelligence that took us to war is still raging.
2: I think it was about 6 o'clockish on the BBC Today programme. Thank you very much, Darren. It is now seven minutes past six. Andrew Gilligan, the defence reporter who I knew very well was interviewed by John Humphreys. The government's facing more questions this morning over its claims about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq.
0: Our defence correspondent is Andrew Gilligan.
2: And he said that he had a source who told him that, effectively, the government's report on Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction had been... ...sexed up to be made more exciting. It was almost a throwaway line on the radio, the implication being that the report was not based on fact but had been exaggerated. Well, the 45 minutes isn't just a detail. It it did go to the heart of the government's case that Saddam was an imminent threat, and and it was repeated four times in the dossier, including by the prime minister himself. When eventually the government realised what he'd said, well, it was one of the most sort of dramatic BBC versus Number 10 dramas that I've ever been involved in. And for literally weeks and weeks and weeks, defence reporters were involved in trying to find out where this story had come from and whether it was true. And and in the meantime, the Number 10, of course, was going ballistic about the report and demanding apologies. But in the long run, it, it turned out that actually the source, who we now know to be David Kelly who was a Ministry of Defence chemical weapons expert, But he didn't actually say there were no weapons of mass destruction. He actually believed it along with everyone else. But he was also worried about the dossier for the very reason that I gave, which was there were no ifs and buts. And that sort of turned into this great idea that the document had been sexed up by the government.
1: Uh, Michael, you mentioned David Kelly there. Just... Remind us a bit more about him and what what happened to him.
2: It was one of the many tragedies of that particular war, and in his case, it was an absolutely personal tragedy. The guy was not named, obviously, by Andrew Gilligan, Hmm. who rightfully kept his name confidential. But it was in the interests of the government to get his name out. Now, I'm not saying that the government gave out his name, they didn't. But the the agreement was that if journalists came up with the right name, then they would confirm it. And this is exactly what happened eventually, was that the name, uh, I in fact found the name, and uh, it was confirmed. And eventually, uh, his name was published, both in the Times and also in the Financial Times. And... uh, Well, it was incredibly sad that this poor man was then summoned to appear before a House of Commons Select Committee and was brutally treated by the MPs on that committee for disloyalty, if you like, or for what he'd said to the BBC. What other journalists have you met?
3: I'm afraid at the moment I can't list
2: that. Uh, I need to compile that list. But basically the list
3: is very few people.
1: You could phone the clerk later tonight, could you? Uh, with the no, list, precisely?
3: I think it's something that should be formally requested of the Ministry of Health.
1: Well, Act. I disagree, because uh, this it's a matter of who you met. It can't be state secrets, can it?
3: It is not state no. secrets at all, but I have to have an accurate record of who I've met. I have to consult with my diary.
2: He was very brutally treated, and the poor man was not in any way either trained or experienced in dealing with this sort of pressure and it uh, it affected him considerably. And uh, eventually he committed suicide. And uh, it's one of the great tragedies of that time, I think.
1: And Michael, back in Iraq, American and British troops have been sent in to occupy the country because, we're told, of weapons of mass destruction. At what point do they realise that there aren't any?
2: So while the fighting was going on, there were teams looking everywhere. They looked in warehouses, they looked in schools, they looked in hospitals, they looked in sheds. And whenever we then addressed the Ministry of Defence and said, well, look, nothing's been found, what's going on? They always came back and said, just be patient, they will be found.
1: But they weren't. Where did all the false allegations around WMD come from? Whose evidence had the intelligence services been relying on? And why was it so flawed? In the last 20 years, we've learned a lot about who the intelligence sources were and what motivated them. Let's start with a man codenamed Curveball, who Michael Evans reported on in The Times.
2: Curveball was Probably the key informant uh, that was behind the whole intelligence setup for the Iraq war invasion. But Curveball turned out to be an Iraqi who had defected to Germany in 1999 and claimed that he was part of Saddam Hussein's chemical weapons and biological weapons program. He claimed that he was a chemical engineer working in one of the key sites. And uh, he was entirely convincing. But first of all, he defected in 1999. So he was already behind the times, if you like, because the the invasion was 2003. uh, So he was out of the loop anyway, even if he had genuinely been a chemical engineer for Saddam Hussein's regime. But it it probably is true, I think it was true, that he was just a fantasist. He had managed to get uh, defection to Germany. And so he. Uh, sold his story, if you like, to the German intelligence. This was passed on to the Americans and they, between the two services, they believed this guy, but actually he was a—he was literally making it up. But of course, what he came up with was what the West wanted to hear. They wanted desperately to get the intelligence that Saddam Hussein did have weapons of mass destruction and this guy, Curveball, so-called, produced the goods.
1: And apart from Curveball, was there any other evidence for WMD? Were there any other sources who were substantiating what they were saying? Well,
2: <clears throat> allegedly there was. Of course, there was the famous case which was actually initiated by British intelligence, which was that Saddam Hussein had sent a team to Niger in Africa to acquire uranium, which, by the way, was dismissed by Niger at the time. I'm still not sure to this day where this intelligence came from and why it was treated with such respect. Hmm. But it was, and of course, this piece of information, intelligence, was also very important in persuading the West to go ahead with the war.
1: In terms of the intelligence community, for example, here, how much did it affect their standing for the next two decades?
2: It had a huge impact, And one of the first things which MI6 did, for instance, they appointed a senior member of MI6 to look into the whole question of verification, validation of sources, because this was absolutely the key to this whole thing. Could these sources be trusted? Were they credible? So they carried out an investigation into all sourcing how sources were acquired, how they were backed up by other sources, how the whole system worked. You couldn't give a report to government based on intelligence. If it was based on one source, you had to have secondary sources and maybe tertiary sources to back up what was originally found.
1: And looking back on it now, 20 years later, is there a sense that you know this was one of the big failures of intelligence?
2: I fear so, yes, <laughs> definitely. I referred before to this tremendous momentum that was building up in this country and in America and elsewhere. And as part of this momentum, there was this desperation to find physical justification for going to war. And it was this demand for intelligence that drove the intelligence services to find everything and anything that would help the government to make its case.
1: And for the experts, the weapons inspectors, like Bob Kelly, who were telling the intelligence services at the time that they were making a mistake, before the war, before hundreds of thousands of people were killed, how do they look back on it now?
3: It was like, oh, that was a big mistake. Sorry, we killed all those people. And that to me is, um, that's not enough justification. It made me very, very upset. And that was at, uh, you know, 20 years ago. And I'm still upset about it. We were experts in the field who were sent there by our governments and who were paid by our governments, but they didn't seem to listen.
1: On Wednesday, in part two, We'll hear from our correspondent Catherine Philp in Baghdad to find out how the country is coping 20 years on. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. With me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, former defence editor at The Times, Michael Evans, and Robert E. Kelly, weapons inspector. You can find more coverage of the 20th anniversary of the Iraq War at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription or in print. The producers today were Olivia Case and Sam Chantarasak. The executive producer is Kate Ford and sound design was by Bjorn Swinton-Berry. If you can, please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.